So um, a few years ago, uh, I got into watching a, uh, a documentary that has several seasons. It's called Everest Beyond the Limit. You can find it now on Amazon Prime Video. If you have that, you can watch it. There's three seasons, but it, it tracks, it kind of charts or follows this, this expedition, three different expeditions up to the summit of Mount Everest, and, and it's, it's, it's fascinating. Like, I watched this when we used to live in Colorado, and so, you know, I'm like, well, I want to do that one day. Uh, but here's the thing. Like, one of the things that, that, that you learned by watching this documentary and it's really awesome. Like, it's a Discovery Channel thing. You, like, if you're into that kind of stuff, watch it. It's fantastic. But one of the things you learn right off the bat, whether you're climbing Mount Everest or, or any kind of mountain is, but, but especially Mount Everest, you don't climb Mount Everest by accident, right? Like, you don't find yourself in the Himalayas and go, you know what? I got a little time. I got a little spare time. Let's just go to the top. You know, like, that's not how you do that. In fact, if it were possible... For us to go from where we are right now, which if you didn't know this, Louisville is 466 feet above sea level, right? That is our current elevation. If it were possible for us to go from where we are now, 460-something feet above sea level, to the summit of Mount Everest, which is 29,032 feet, you would survive for a few minutes before you passed out due to the lack of oxygen. And you'd be dead in less than an hour because the lack of oxygen at that altitude causes fluid to build up around and in your lungs. It causes your brain to swell, and you eventually slip, slip into a coma and drown in your own bodily fluid. So sound like fun? Who wants to go, right? Sign me up. But here's the deal. If you, if you want to climb Mount Everest and live to tell about it, you have to do it on purpose, and, and here's what that looks like. I did a little research this week. If an expedition to the summit of Mount Everest right now will set you back somewhere between $70,000 and $125,000, right? Which my guess would be when you're, if you're considering a trip to the summit of Mount Everest, don't go with the bargain rate, right? Like there's no Groupons. Like yeah, me and three of my friends, you get us to the summit, right? Like go with the, you want to probably go with the higher end there, right? So somewhere between 70 and 125 grand. And you have to train for years in preparation for an expedition to Everest. You have to train for years just to get to base camp. And just so you know, like base camp, the bottom of Everest where you start is a mile higher than the highest point in the lower 48 in the United States, right? Which is Mount Elbert, which is in Colorado. I've been to the top of it. It's beautiful. But you're, you're talking about a mile higher than, than that. And here's what it does. If, to, if you're going to climb Everest, you, you have to spend somewhere between two and two and a half months on the mountain, right? And, and that all pays off, right? Two, two and a half months on this mountain for about 30 minutes on the summit, right? That's, the, that's about the, the total time you can really spend on the summit and, and still live to tell about it. And in that two months that you're on the mountain, right, you make a series of acclimatizing climbs. That's what they call it, right? Each time you climb up a little bit higher than you did before. So you go up a little bit, you come back down. You go up a little bit higher, you come back down. You go up a little bit higher, you come back down. And you do that over and over and over again for two months. And over time, your body begins to adapt to the lack of oxygen and living in high altitude. Literally, your body physically changes, right? Your blood gets thicker so that it can carry more blood cells and more oxygen to your body, right? Your heart enlarges, your lungs get bigger and stronger. And at that point, after about two, two and a half months, at that point, once your body has changed and adapted to high altitude, only at that point can you go to the summit. So, Kind of the takeaway is this, I'll save you if you don't want to watch three seasons of a documentary, that the only way up to the summit of Mount Everest is to literally, literally and physically become the kind of person 
that's able to get there. You cannot try to get to the top of Mount Everest. You have to train to get there. Right, and so we're kind of the halfway point in, in our series. And so what I want to do today before we, we, we dive in is I want to talk a little bit about like what these disciplines are all about, okay? And, and as we've been saying, if you want to know what a definition of a discipline is, if you missed this, again, the way we take notes at Adventure is just take your phone out and take a picture of the screen. So here's, here's the definition of what disciplines are. Disciplines are, they're training activities that we can do. Like, they're possible for us. It's something that we actually can do. And over time, they make it possible for us to do what we couldn't do just by trying harder, right? And there's a key dichotomy in this that I really need us to kind of wrap our heads and hearts around today. Because here's the deal. As we continue to move into these disciplines, we're going to get more and more practical and more and more pragmatic. But here's the thing. In, in, in being practical and being pragmatic, sometimes you just kind of turn into this thing that wants to do something instead of become someone, right? When things get really practical, things become a list of to-dos versus continuing on the path of becoming someone. So I, I want us to make sure that we get this because as we get into things like reading scripture, worship, right? Those kinds of things, relationships. If we get so practical that we lose sight of becoming the kind of people that, that do the things that Jesus did, then we're missing the point, right? So here's, kind of the, here's the difference between training and trying. Trying looks at the task at hand and attempts to perform in such a way in that given moment through personal effort, right? So trying, you're just trying harder. Like you're trying within your ability and within your effort to do something. And here's the question that trying asks. Trying asks this, what do I need to do and how hard do I have to try in order to accomplish what needs to get done? And here's the deal when it comes to trying. Anything short of perfect will result in failure, right? If you're not able to try and give exactly what that situation or that moment needs, if you come up short, you'll fail. And if we're being honest, for most of us, when we, when we face and address and step into some of the situations we have in life, going at that with the, the strategy of just trying hard to accomplish the goal, trying hard to become a better person, trying hard to do things that maybe we weren't able to do, at best, we're looking at 50-50, right? 50-50. There's a 50-50 chance that I'll succeed or fail. And if we're being honest, it's probably more like 70-30. There's a 70-30 chance, 70% chance I'm not going to have what it takes. There's a 30% chance I might get this right on the first try. If we're being honest, that's the, that's the case. And a lot of us, maybe we've even said this, like I tried, but I wasn't able to do enough. And that can apply to all kinds of things. It can apply to your marriage. It can apply to, to parenting. It can apply to your job, your family, your relationships, whatever. I tried. I tried to fix this, but I just wasn't able to do enough, which is basically I tried to do this, but I wasn't perfect. So I failed. I got fired. The relationship fell apart. The marriage fell apart. My kids went crazy, right? You realize, maybe even some of us, it's not even the point, to the point of trying. Maybe it's you, you look at a situation in your life when it comes to, to, to trying hard and trying to be perfect, and you realize when you look at a certain situation, you realize, I don't have what it takes, which means I'm not even good enough or perfect enough to even try, so I quit. I'll either quit because I don't have what it takes, or I won't even try at all. I'll disqualify myself from the beginning, right? So that's kind of the mindset of trying harder to do something, trying harder to become someone. Here's the difference, though. Training 
Training looks at the task or the goal at hand and begins to practice so that over time you become the kind of person who's able to complete the task or accomplish the goal, whatever it is you're doing, right? So here's the question that training asks. Training asks this, what can I do that will help me become the kind of person who can do what needs to be done? Do you see the difference? Like it's subtle, but it's really profound. And so what training would say is I might not be able to do that now. I might not be able to do this whole thing now. I might not be able to bite off whatever this whole problem is, issue in my life, whatever it is. I might not be able to tackle that whole thing now, but here's what I can do. I can start making some small decisions. I can start making, stacking some, 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 some smaller wins, making some, some right choices, starting to stack up right choice after right choice after right choice. I can do those things, and eventually over time, it'll make, me, it'll make it possible for me to tackle the, this big issue in my life, whatever that is. So you go back to kind of the Mount Everest story, right? The only way to get to the summit of Mount Everest is to train in such a way that you become the kind of person that can get to the summit of Mount Everest. You can't just try to get there. Well, I'm going to show up. I'm going to climb to the top of this thing. Nope, you'll die. And I think most of us, maybe a lot of us, if we were being honest, would say that, that we've experienced that kind of death in, in the fact that maybe we've tried to do things in our life. We tried to save our marriage. We tried to parent our kids. We tried to, 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 to do our job. And we tried hard, and it just wasn't enough. And so we've experienced relational death, right? We've experienced financial death. Because we got to the thing, we got to the base of that one. I, I just have to try to get to the top of this thing. And you don't have what it takes. Because you're not the kind of person that can do that yet. And it's the same thing when it comes to this being and becoming, right? Being and becoming disciples of Jesus. When we read through the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see that Jesus, that he personally practiced, which means Jesus trained in disciplines, spiritual disciplines. And we've been talking about them. It's prayer, obedience, being word-centered, which is what we're going to talk about today. Exaltation, which is a fancy word for worship. And then relational intentionality. Those were what Jesus practiced. And those are what led Jesus to a life of power. Right? We see Jesus had a powerful influence. Right? 2,000 plus years and across an ocean, we're still talking about him. Right? A guy who was 33 years old when he died whose public ministry only lasted about three, three and a half years, here we are over 2,000 years later and across an ocean, we're still talking about him. That's a powerful influence, right? And the same life is available to us. Jesus says, you can go on to do what I did. And we're gonna talk more about that today. But these are the main training activities that Jesus did so that Jesus could become the kind of person that did the things that Jesus did. And I know what you're thinking. Like, I, I think the same thing from time to time, right? Well, it's like, well, Jesus was the son of God. Like, he had like a little extra God power, right? Like, Jesus had things that we don't have. Here's the truth. No, he didn't. Like, in his humanity, right, Jesus was a person. He's God with skin on, right? That's kind of what we say. But like, Jesus, in his life and, and through his ministry, Jesus lived life as a man, intentionally. Jesus had, my, my friend Dan Spader calls it like the God ATM card. Like Jesus had the God ATM card in his back pocket and he could have used it at any time, but for 33 and a half years of his life, he never used it once. Jesus was just like us. And when you start to read the gospels, when you read Jesus's story, what you realize is Jesus had at his disposal 
everything that we have at our disposal now. Now, here's some differences. Rising from the dead after being publicly executed, right? That's some extra God power, right? We don't, we don't have that, right? But he's got that. And, and the, the things that we see Jesus doing kind of post-resurrection, like Jesus was flexing up a little bit. It's like, yeah, you saw me live 33 and a half years as a man. Well, now here's the God ATM card. I'm using it, right? Like Jesus did some pretty incredible things post-resurrection. But before his resurrection, he was just a man. He was just a guy who lived life the same way that we do. What Jesus had available to him in his ministry, we have. In fact, in Luke 2, 52, it says this, that Jesus, and this is Jesus as a 12-year-old, right? So 12-year-old Jesus, his, his earthly parents, right, Mary and Joseph, they go to Jerusalem, uh, to, 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 to the temple, and when they head back to Nazareth, they realize about halfway through the journey that they left Jesus, that he's not with them, and it's like, parent fail, right? It's like, you're going to talk about, some of us in the room, it's like, man, I don't feel like I'm a great parent. Did you leave the son of God at church? You're okay, right? Like, you're okay. So they realize that he's back at the temple, so they go back to the temple, and they find him, like, as a 12-year-old, seventh grader. He's sitting with all the rabbis talking about scripture, and they're leaning in and listening and going, man, this kid, this kid knows a few things about the Bible, and he's like, yeah, I kind of wrote it. But anyway, Here's what Luke 2 says. Luke 2 said that Jesus, even as a young man, as a 12-year-old, as a middle schooler, that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, which tells us that Jesus had to grow up just like we do. He wasn't born with the whole of Scripture downloaded into his little baby brain. He had to grow. He had to grow up. He had to learn. He He had to get a job. He had, to, he had to train and study to be a spiritual teacher, a rabbi. Jesus had to learn the same way that we do. He had to grow just like we do. And so Jesus' approach to becoming the kind of person who could do what he came to do was to practice disciplines in his humanity. Jesus knows, like, this is what I've come to do. This is what my mission is. My mission is to begin the rescue and restoration of all of humanity. So in order to begin the rescue and restoration of all humanity, i got to practice. i got to practice disciplines. I have to train to become someone instead of just trying to do something. So the disciplines that Jesus practiced, as we've been saying, those are the same disciplines that Jesus used to disciple, right? Which disciple as a verb means to train and equip. So Jesus used the same disciplines he practiced in his own life to train and equip his disciples, And again, we don't use the word disciple a lot in 2024 in modern culture. Disciple back in this day was a trainee or an apprentice. And the whole point of being a trainee or an apprentice was to learn, to do, and to be able to become able to do the things that your trainer was doing, the person you were apprenticing under. That's the whole point. So Jesus used those same disciplines to train and equip his trainees and apprentices. And they're the same disciplines that we use to practice today to join Jesus' movement, right? Jesus didn't just come to do ministry. Jesus came to start a disciple-making movement of multiplication, right, 2,000 years ago, and we're invited into that now. Dallas Willard, who I love, says this, disciplines are activities of the mind, body, and soul purposefully undertaken to bring our personality and total being into effective cooperation with the divine order. He says they, they enable us more and more to live in a power, right? Prayer, obedience, word, exaltation, relationships. 
this power that is, that is, strictly speaking, he says, beyond us, deriving from the spiritual realm itself. So it makes life look different. So it made Jesus' life look so different. It's what made Jesus so powerful, the fact that he practiced disciplines that kept him locked in with his Father and the presence of the Holy Spirit. That power that was beyond Jesus was walking in that. But, but what we've learned in the last few weeks is this, is going at these disciplines through willpower alone is a losing strategy, right? 80 to 85% of people bail on their resolutions, usually sometime like right around now and into the first week of February. By this time, most of us, if it's a typical resolution, we've bailed on it. So here's the key for us. When Jesus invited whoever, and he, does, he says this in scripture, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple, which literally means Whoever, anyone and everyone that wants to be a disciple of Jesus, his expectation is that in discipleship to him and through his disciplines, right, that we would do these three things. These are the three goals of of being a disciple, right? And these are goals that are shared by both us as disciples and the disciple maker. So Jesus' expectation is this, one, that we would be with him. And we see this, like Jesus' first invitation to the people that would eventually go on to be his disciples was just come and see. Like, let's spend an afternoon together. Let's spend an evening together. Let's talk. Let's get to know each other. So he wants you to be with him, spend time with him. The second goal was to become like him. And we become like Jesus by training, by practicing his ways. And so you see kind of the second invitation and challenge that Jesus offers to his disciples is follow me. But not just follow me. Follow me and I'll make you into fishers of men. You won't just catch fish, you'll catch people. You're not just working to, 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 to earn a living for you and your family. Now you're working to further the kingdom of God in the lives of other people, right? So be with me, become like me, and then go do what I do, right? All of this is so we can go and do the things that he did, which is kind of his last words to his disciples were, go and make more disciples. He even says to teach them, train them. In the same way I trained you, to be obedient to the same things I taught you to be obedient to. So what all of this means is this. This is important for us. Jesus expects continual practice, not momentary perfection. We talked about this a little bit last week. I I touched on it at the very end, but I want to make sure that we hit on this hard today. Because what Jesus expects of you is practice, not perfection. Jesus wants you to practice throughout your whole life, not just try to be perfect in a given moment. Jesus expects us to train to become like him, not just try harder to be like him. So instead of asking, how hard do I need to try to be like Jesus in order to do what he did? We ask this, how can I train to become the same kind of person as Jesus? Who is able to do the same kinds of things that Jesus did. Again, really subtle but really profound. Jesus' own disciples, they even kind of spell this out for us, right? So we can take Jesus' word, but take it from the guys who actually were discipled by Jesus, right? They knew, because they spent three years with Jesus, they knew what, what he expected of them. And so they make it clear. John, one of Jesus' disciples, makes it really clear what's expected of us as we enter into discipleship with Jesus. It says this in 1 John chapter 2. It says, we know that we have come to know him If we keep his commands, what Jesus says. He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. 
right? We talked a little bit about this last week, right? There, there's really two kinds of people in scripture when it comes to their relationship with Jesus. There are the followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, and there are the crowds, right? And what Jesus expects, right? There's no third category called Christians. Like these followers are people who have reoriented their entire lives around Jesus, right? They've reshaped and re-architected their entire lives. I don't even know if that's a word. I just made it up, right? They, they built their lives around Jesus, there's this group, and then there's the crowd, which is everybody else, people that haven't. And there's no third category called Christians who agree with most of what Jesus says, expect, them to, expect him to save them when they die, expect the gift of salvation, but really don't want to do anything else. This category in Scripture does not exist. John would say, you say you know Jesus, but you're not really following him, so you're a liar. And the truth is not in you. But John goes on. He says, if anybody obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in Jesus must live as Jesus did. There you have it. That's the expectation. That's the expectation handed down from Jesus to his disciples. And now his disciples are doing what what Jesus asked them to do and handing it down to us. So it's real simple. If you want to live in Jesus, if we live in Jesus, if we want to live in Jesus, if we want to experience the life that Jesus wants for us, I mean, he says, I came so that you can have life to the full. That is an abundant life, a life maxed out. If you want to live that life, the with God life, if you want to live in Jesus, you have to live like him. You can't just like him, right? And I think that's where a lot of us probably are. It's like, wow, I like Jesus. And I don't know why, I mean, I told him, I like him. I mean, I trusted him enough to let somebody dunk me underwater. I told Jesus, I like you. So why isn't my life looking any different? Well, you can like Jesus and not live like him. And the thing is, if you like Jesus, but you don't live like him, you're not going to experience any of the life that he offers for us. Now, this is really important for us to get, okay? One author put it like this. We're not trying to live Jesus' life. Jesus did that. Right? This is not a life where we're going, man, I've got to live Jesus' life. I have to do exactly the same, same things that he did. We're not trying to mimic right, or, or repeat Jesus' life. Jesus already lived his life. Right? We're not learning to do everything that, that he did, but we're learning how to do everything that we do in the same manner that Jesus did all he did, right? Does that make sense? I know that's kind of a tongue twister and it kind of can can stretch your brain a little bit, but that's really what discipleship is. Discipleship is not just, well, I'm I'm trying to repeat the life of Jesus. Jesus is going, you don't need to do that. I already did that, right? I already lived my life and I lived my life for you. I lived my life in obedience to my father and died a death on a cross so that you can then learn to, to live your life how I lived mine. Right? We become the kind of people that we learn, every, we learn how to do everything in the same way that Jesus did. Right? But it's our life. It's our life lived in the image of Jesus. That's discipleship. Now, today we're talking about people who are becoming word-centered. Okay? So what does that mean to be word-centered? Let me just kind of preface this today like before we dig in. I'm not going to talk today as much about like the nature of Scripture or like where the Bible comes from, you know, who authored it, those kinds of things, like what it's all about. Here's, here's what I'll give you. Here's what the Bible says, 2 Timothy 3, says that all Scripture, which means the whole thing, all Scripture is God-breathed 
and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God, that's us, right? Servant, remember from a couple weeks ago, we talked about what it means to be obedient. The way we practically live out obedience is to take on the posture of a servant, right? So that the obedient person, the servant of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Here's what you need to know when it comes to scripture in just a handful of seconds, right? When it comes to all of this, and kind of for the sake of what we're going to dive into today, what you need to hang on to when it comes to the Bible is this. Every single word in the, book of, in, in the Bible was inspired by God and was breathed by his spirit into the people that wrote it all down. Right? So here's what we know. We know that because of that, the Bible is perfect. That the Bible has authority in our lives. That the words in the Bible are God speaking to us. I can't tell you how many times I counsel people pastorally, and, and you'll hear them say, well, I just don't know if God's speaking. And I'm like, well, how, are you reading your Bible? No. That's God speaking, right? He speaks through his word. There's thousands of them written down on pages in the Bible. Just start reading it. But if you want to get into, like Matt said, some of the Bible nerd stuff, there's, it's a great rabbit hole to go down. Right? There are lots of sermons and lots of resources uh, on the accuracy and inerrancy of Scripture, which we believe in. Right? We, we, there are lots of sermons and lots of resources when it comes to the authority of Scripture in our lives. Like we've got them up on our podcast. We've preached through those. Our number one value in our high five is, is, is we live the way, which is all about biblical authority, the Bible's authority in our lives. We believe that here at Adventure. We are a Bible-believing and Bible-teaching Bible church. But what I want to unpack today is how Jesus approached Scripture. Because the, the way Jesus approached Scripture, it had a profound effect on his life. And Jesus' expectations of us of being his disciples mean that, that we need to approach Scripture the same way that he did. And I'm just going to tell you this right off the bat. Entering into the discipline of becoming, centering ourselves on the Word, right, does not mean that you have to leave today and sign up for as many Bible studies as humanly possible. It's like that, you're not going to hear that. And I don't know if there's any other church, right, that would say that. Right? You, you, the expectation is not for you to go out today and go, man, i got to find some, some places to get in the Word. I need to be in the Word 24-7. I need to sign up for as many Bible studies as humanly possible. That's not the expectation. Right? I think what happens is we often assume that our knowledge of the Bible, that as our knowledge of the Bible increases, as we know more about Jesus, then our ability to be like Jesus will also increase as a result. So like, really, to be more like Jesus, all I need to do is study. I just need to know more. And can I just tell you that's not the case? I've met people who know infinitely, infinitely more about the Bible than I do. I've met people that have degrees and titles and letters after their name, but they are some of the most unchristlike people I've ever met in my life. There are, are many theology departments and colleges and universities around the country and around the world that have atheist and agnostic professors. They know more about the Bible than any of us, but they don't know Jesus. John Mark Comer, in his book, Practicing the Way, he quotes a philosopher, a guy named James Smith. And James Smith says this. He says, you cannot think your way into Christ-likeness. That practicing the way of Jesus is less like quantum physics and more like learning jujitsu. It's something you do with your entire body. Jesus' ways are not an intellectual theory. They're an embodied way of being. 
And for Jesus, his approach to Scripture was the same. It wasn't just about knowing information. It was about being transformed in life by the truth of God that's found in the Bible. Now, back in Jesus' day, the, the Bible was just the Old Testament, right? Jesus was kind of in the middle of, like, living out the New Testament. Like, he was writing that as he was, was going along with his life. But here's what we can pick up about Jesus. Here's what we know as we read through the Gospels, like the biographies of Jesus. So there are about 1,800 verses, roughly, that make up these four biographies of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books in the New Testament. And in those biographies, in those 1,800-ish verses, Jesus, he quotes or alludes to verses in the Old Testament 180 times. 180 verses in those 1,800 verses, Jesus quotes or alludes to or points to or says, you've heard it said or you've heard it written or it was written 180 different times. So 10%, roughly, of what Jesus said, of what he taught, of what he preached, the ways of living that Jesus pointed to came directly from Scripture. Right? That's pretty incredible. And just a few examples that we see, like when Jesus faced temptation. I mean, you go, wait a minute. Jesus faced temptation like Jesus was tempted? Yes. The Bible tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way, in all of the same ways that we're tempted. The difference between Jesus and us is he didn't give in to those, right? Jesus was tempted and did not sin. We get tempted and we go, hey, that seems nice. And we just follow sin into destruction, right? That's kind of what we do. But here's, just a, here's an example. When Jesus faced temptation in the desert, Satan, the first thing Satan tempts, and I think he does the same thing with us, is he tempts Jesus' appetite. You know, not just maybe your appetite for food, but maybe your ap appetite for fame and notoriety, those kinds of things. Satan will tempt your appetite all day. You're hungry. You should eat. And here's what Jesus says. Matthew 4, 4. Jesus says to Satan, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy 8, 3. In the face of temptation, Jesus goes to Scripture. When his appetite gets tempted, Jesus, you've been out in the desert, you've been fasting for 40 days. I bet you're hungry. Why don't you turn these rocks into, into loaves of bread? Then you can eat. Jesus, in the face of temptation, he quotes scripture. He points back to Deuteronomy. And again, what does he say? We don't live on bread alone. That's not what sustains our life. What sustains our life? The word that comes from the mouth of God. Where do you find that? In the Bible. When Satan tempted Jesus' need for approval, which that for me is one I can really relate to, right? We all have this kind of need and desire to be liked. We want people to approve us, to think that we're good. So Satan tempts Jesus' need for approval. He says, listen, if you really want to know if God loves you, if you really want to know if God approves of you, then jump off the top of the temple and see if God, if he really loves you, then he'll save you. If God's really approved if he really approves of you, jump off the, the roof of the temple and see what happens. And Jesus says this in Matthew 4, 7. He says, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. He quotes Deuteronomy 6, 16. Again, he's tempted in a different way. This time the need for approval. Jesus quotes scripture. When Satan tempted Jesus' ambition, he says, listen, you want to be king of the world? Jesus, if you just bow down and worship me, I'll give you the world. All of the kingdoms will be yours. And Jesus says this in Matthew 4.10. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Deuteronomy 6.13. And that's just a couple examples. 
There are countless other examples. And so here's what we know. Jesus knew the Bible. Jesus knew the Bible, right? In his day, you know, for someone to become a rabbi, you studied the Bible until you were 17 years old, right? If you made it that far in the Jewish educational system, you studied the Bible until you were 17 years old. And in those 17 years, you memorized the entire Old Testament. I mean, that's crazy. You memorize, not just, well, I think it says here, which is kind of how I operate. Well, it says somewhere. Jesus had the whole thing memorized, right? So he knew the Bible. Jesus knew the history of the Bible. He knew the commands of God. He knew the commandments of God. Jesus, when he read the Bible, read about the prophecies, right, of his own coming. Jesus knew who he was from the truth that was in Scripture. But for Jesus, it was more than just head knowledge. Jesus centered his life on the word of God. And you can see just in these few examples that the word of God directed Jesus' life. When Jesus faced the ultimate kinds of temptations that we face, our appetite, our need for approval, and our ambition, Jesus quotes scripture in the face of that temptation. He goes to the Bible in the most critical points in his life. So we know that Jesus knowing the Bible, that's not in question. But what is the question that I want to answer today is how? How did Jesus center his life on the word of God? Because how Jesus centered his life on the word of God is how Jesus expects us to center our lives on the word of God. And it all starts with you and I shifting our approach so that the way we approach scripture matches the way that Jesus did. If you've got your Bibles out or Bible apps, go to John. We're going to be in the book of John for, for a couple of different verses. I'm going to give you two different examples where Jesus gives us some, some insight into his approach, the way he approached Scripture. John 8 is where we're going to start first. And it says this, Jesus, so Jesus said to the Jews that had believed him, he says this, if you abide in my word. If you've got your Bible out or your Bible app, circle, highlight, underline, whatever you need to do, abide in my word. He said, if you abide in my word... You're truly my disciples. So again, we're talking about becoming disciples of Jesus. How do we know that we're disciples of Jesus? By abiding in his word. And Jesus says, if you're my disciples who abide in my word, you will know the truth, famous, and the truth will set you free. Right? So that's one little, little insight. Flip over to John 15, right? This whole chapter of John 15 is incredible, but we're going to start in verse 7. Jesus says this, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. By this, right, my father is glorified and you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Stop right here for just a second. So what happens when we abide in Jesus? When we abide in his words, his words abide in us. And when his word abides in us, his father is glorified. Why? Because by abiding in Jesus' word, our lives begin to bear much fruit. Underline, highlight, circle, whatever you mean, that whole section. Right? We bring glory to God as Jesus' disciples, and our lives bear kingdom fruit. And God gets the glory. And the way we do that is by abiding in Jesus' word. And Jesus makes a promise, if you abide in my word, my word will abide in you. Let's keep going. It says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. How? If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Just as I kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be complete in you, and that your joy may be full. 
you probably pick up on a theme, right? Again, there's these little kind of hints and these, these things that Jesus, like these, these identifiers, right? These things that Jesus gives us to go, he, here's how my approach is a little different than yours. And Jesus says that, that one of the main ways that we will be his disciples is by abiding in his word. And he says, by abiding in his word, his words will abide in us. Well, how do we abide in Jesus' word? According to Jesus, it's by abiding in his commandments. And this is where he gives us insight into his approach. Don't miss this, right? These are both kind of famous passages that we get preached on, that you hear get preached on a lot. Like, it's, it's a lot to, it's preachers, pastors, they preach on these verses a lot. These verses get quoted a lot, but there's something that we miss out on, I think, most of the time. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, you'll abide in my love and you'll find freedom in my truth the same way that I abided in my Father's love and found freedom in his truth. And that was abiding in his word and by keeping his commandments. So Jesus found freedom and truth in his own life by abiding in his Father's word. And he says it's the same for us. You'll find freedom and truth in your life by abiding in Jesus' words. For Jesus, the Bible wasn't something to read. It was something to abide in. So let's unpack this, right? As we kind of wrap up and land the plane, let's unpack this. Let's just do a quick inventory, not rhetorical questions, okay? You're allowed to answer crowd participation. Where do we find Jesus' words? In the Bible. Where did Jesus find his Father's words? In the Bible. So abiding in Jesus' words that we find in the Bible leads to what? What does Jesus say? Two things. Truth and love and three things, right? Freedom, right? There you go. I love it. But not just any truth, right? It's the truth that sets us free. But when we abide in Jesus' words, which are found in the Bible, we don't only experience truth and freedom, but we also experience, now say it, love. There it is. Nailed it. You got it. And through Jesus' love, Jesus tells us that our lives bear the kind of fruit that his life did, which is the kind of fruit that God intended for our lives to bear which when our lives bear that kind of fruit, it brings glory to God, right? What we talk about back in creation, the whole reason God created humanity was to reflect his character and identity to creation. That's why we were created. We were were created so that when creation looks at us, they see an image and reflection of God. As we abide in Jesus' word, we find truth, we find freedom, we find love, but at the same time, we begin to take on that same image and reflection. That when creation looks at us, they see God. Right? And all of that happens. How do we do that? Right? A word. How do we do that? How do we get to that place? Abide. In what? His word. Yes. Which are found where? In the Bible. Right? So here's a simple equation. Jesus' truth plus Jesus' way equals a Jesus kind of life. But the shift in approach happens when we begin to see and understand what this whole abide thing is really about. The the word abide that Jesus used over 10 times in these few verses literally translates this, stay, dwell, or remain. And what that would have meant to the original hearers, right, what that would have been meant to the original readers is this, make your home in me and in my word as I make my home in you through my word. That's how those verses would translate. Make your home in me through my word. And Jesus meets us in that space. I love the fact that that Jesus meets a promise with a promise. If you'll make your home in me and my word, I'll make my home in you through my word. For Jesus, again, we've said this, 
The Bible wasn't just a book to be read or memorized for the sake of memorization or to be understood for the sake of knowledge and understanding. For Jesus, the Bible was a truth to be lived in. Dallas Willard says this, dwelling in Jesus' word means to center your life upon Jesus' good news about a new kingdom that is now here among us. The new kingdom life is now available to us. And my guess is that's a different approach to how many of us have approached Scripture in the past. Seeing it as something to be lived in, a home to be dwelt in, is probably a different approach. It's probably, we haven't tried that before, but that approach is exactly what Jesus was after. When Jesus wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about these verses during our House on Fire series back in the fall, but check out what they mean in this case, right? In light of what we're learning now, which is super cool that you can read the Bible. How many ever times you read the Bible, you can read the same verses 10 times, and depending on what's going on in your life, those same verses can speak 10 different ways. So we preached on these verses for the better part of two months back in the fall, but check out what they mean now. Matthew 7, 24 and 27, Jesus says, everyone who then hears these words, my truth, Another way of translating the word words is teaching. Anyone who hears these teaching, this truth of mine that's found in the Bible, and does them, which means this, to literally construct your life with Jesus' word. Anyone who hears my teaching, my words found in the Bible, and constructs their lives with them will be like a wise man who built his house, his dwelling place, where you live your life on the rock which we talked about back in October, doesn't mean like a big boulder. The rock, the way that people would have heard this back in Jesus' day, would have, they would have known this to mean the rock. That's the top of a mountain. That's where God and people meet. So again, anyone who hears the truth and teaching of Jesus found in the Bible and constructs their lives with them is like someone whose life dwells where God and people meet. And Jesus says, here's the difference. The rain comes and the floods come and the winds blow and they beat on your life. They beat on that dwelling, that dwelling place, but your life will not fall apart. Why? Because it has been founded, literally centered on, made stable on the rock, the place where God meets with his people. And what Jesus says is the place that God meets with his people is not on a literal mountaintop somewhere. The place where God meets with his people is in the Bible. That's where it is. Do you want your life to be founded on a place that God meets with his people? Then construct and center your life on the truth of scripture and then live in it. It's not not static, it's kinetic. When you think about it, you picture your own house. Like in your house, you don't just stand in one place in the room. You move around in your house. You learn how to do things in your house grow in your house. Your family grows in your house. It's the same way in scripture. Just like you dwell in your home, dwell in scripture, live in it. I'm going to close with a quote from Eugene Peterson. It's a longer quote, so bear with me. And then I've got a challenge for us. All right, here's the quote. Eugene Peterson says this, scripture does not present us with a moral code and tell us to live up to this. Nor does it set out a system of doctrine and say, think like this and you'll live well. The biblical way is to tell a story and in telling, invite us, live into this. 
when we submit our lives to what we read in scripture, we find that the Bible, all of it is livable. It is the text for living our lives. We say this a lot in here, that Bible people aren't Bible people, they're just people people. All of the Bible is livable. We can live in the ways of scripture. Eugene Peterson goes on and says, we're we're not led to see God in our stories, but see our stories in God's. We submit our lives to this text that is endlessly bringing together heaven and earth. That's what the Bible is. That's how we change our approach to it. The same way that Jesus approached scripture is the same way that we must approach scripture. And then we can begin to live the life that Jesus did. If you want your life to be a place where God is constantly meeting with you, you have to get in the word of God. So here's your challenge. For those of us that are in kind of the high resolution challenge, you got this on Friday. For the rest of us, you're getting it today. Here's the challenge. Your challenge is this weekend. We've got it all lined out for you. We'll put a resource uh, on all of our socials. We'll put the resource on the Church Center app. Here's what it is. This week, you're going to read through all four Gospels. The Gospels of Jesus. And here's the thing. It's lined out to do it in seven days. So you'll start today or you'll start on Monday and you'll finish next Sunday. It's, It's lined out for you to do this in all four days. But my challenge to you would be this. See how many times you can read through it in seven days. Four books of the Bible, all about Jesus. Here's the thing, if, if, as you see Jesus, like this thing, if you've got a study Bible, my recommendation is the ESV study Bible. It is excellent. If you don't have one, we'll get you one. Or if you need a Bible, if you don't have a Bible at home, there are free ones on the back table, take them home. But if you've got a study Bible, read the footnotes. See how many times Jesus quotes scripture and then begins to apply scripture to the lives of people just like you and I. But your challenge this week is to read through all four gospels at least once to start your day with that which means you might have to get up a little earlier than you're used to. But each day's reading will take you about 10, 15 minutes. If you're dyslexic like me, it might take you 25. But you can get through it. You can do it. And what this is, it's like climbing Mount Everest. You don't run to the top. You go up a little bit, and then a little bit more, and then a little bit more, and then a little bit more, and slowly over time, you become the kind of person that meets with God on the mountaintop. But the mountaintop is your life. And the meeting is the word. So that's the challenge today. Do what you can do to make it possible to become the kind of person that lives in Jesus' truth. I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna worship one last song. Uh, If today you need prayer, I'd love to pray with you down front or you can pray here at the foot of the cross. If today you wanna join our church, you wanna become part of this family, we'd love for you to do that. If today you wanna say yes to Jesus for the first time, I'd love to meet you down front and we can pray through that as well. I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna worship together. Jesus, we love you. And today, Father, we pray and what we ask is for the courage, for the perseverance to become people that live in your word, that abide in it, that are the, the, the recipients of the promise of that if we live in your word, your word will live in us. If we make our home in you, you'll make our home in us. So Jesus, this morning, that is our prayer. And we worship you now.